Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Is there a connection between nuclear weapons and UFOs? Did something strange follow the U.S. Air Force's 509th bomb wing from Roswell, New Mexico to Portsmouth, New Hampshire in 1958? What exactly happened at Exeter, New Hampshire on September 3rd, 1965? Hello and welcome to the 673rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben and those explosive questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. Although I think it would have been more appropriate to say extraterrestrial questions. Well, that's too obvious. Uh, I suppose so. It's not as subtle. Talking about bombs here. I mean, all right, fine. That's a pretty good pun then. So today we welcome back a popular guest uh, from lovely New Hampshire who has the inside story on much of his native state's bizarre UFO history. And we welcome your phone calls. The numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada and 401-766-1240. That is in our ON-1240 uh, listening area here in southeastern New England. And we will also monitor emails. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Ryan Mullahy is a researcher, author, and the founder of New Hampshire UFO Research. He has been studying UFO phenomena there and throughout New England for at least 17 years, probably more. And he has written numerous research articles on historic and contemporary New Hampshire UFO cases. Ryan's research has been featured on Yahoo News and in New Hampshire Magazine, and he has presented his research at the annual Exeter UFO Festival for a number of years now. He has also appeared on New Hampshire Public Radio, Podcast UFO, Mac Maloney's X-Files, and I believe this is his fourth appearance on Behind the Paranormal. Uh, Ryan's website is https slash slash nhuforesearch.com. So, Ryan, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, well, it's great to have you with us. So, let's pick up at the, uh, or let's pick up the trail at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947, and that's where the uh, U.S. Uh, Army Air Force's uh, 509th Bomb Group was based. So at the time, it was on- the only unit uh, in the country with nuclear weapons. And in July that year, the famous UFO crash at Roswell went down, and the 509th uh, was at the center of whatever that was about. And two months later, the Army Air Force uh, became its own military service, and uh, the U.S. Air Force and the 509th uh, became the 509th Bomb Wing, and in 1958, uh, the unit was transferred to uh, Peace Air Force Base uh, near Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So, Ryan, can you uh, pick up the story from there? Sure. Um, basically, the 509th moved in 1958, and while there had been UFO sightings in New Hampshire prior to 1947 and also right around the time of Oswald, there was also a cluster of sightings in New Hampshire, which I can go into a little later in more detail. But once um, the bomb group moved over in 58, um, there had been sightings in New Hampshire, but that particular area in the Exeter and Pease Air Force Base area, um, there started to be a lot of sightings uh, by police officers and different and military personnel. So, um, you know, it seems that that there, you know, there's been a bit of activity surrounding that area in the base um, after the 509th moved there. Whether it's connected or not, it's tough to say, but, um, you know, there did seem to be some increased activity going into the 60s after they moved there. Hmm. Okay, can you um, <clears throat> get specific about events? And, of course, you know, what comes to mind is the uh, incident at Exeter in 1965. Can you tell us what that was about? Sure. Um, 
incident in Exeter <clears throat> was a young gentleman, Norman Muscarello, was walking home one night on September 3, 1965, and was walking on a farm road in Kensington, New Hampshire, which is right outside of Exeter, and he basically was passing a farm and saw a strange light that started to dive down at him and was swooping in the sky, so he dove in a ditch next to a wall to avoid this object and then ran to the farmhouse that was next to him and pounded on the door to try and get help. No one would come to the door, so he kind of just sat there waiting, and then a car came up the road, so he was able to flag that car down, and he had them bring him directly to Exeter Police Station and told the police officers on duty the story. Um, they, in turn, thought it was a good idea to go back to the field where Norman saw this object and check it out because they had just fielded a report from a woman they found on the side of the road that was distraught about a simil similarly described object um, flying over her car. So one of the officers and Norman went back out to this field where he had this sighting and walked out into the field, and then pretty soon after they walked out, uh, the officer also saw this object, and it came over the field, uh, was approximately said to be 100 feet over the officer and Norman. Uh, the officer instinctually dropped to his knee and drew his gun, but then grabbed Norman, and they ran back to the cruiser and called it in. And at that point, another cruiser was already en route, and that cruiser showed up, and that officer and uh, the officer Bertrand that was on site were able to observe the object for close to 10 minutes. So that that's the, the thumbnail on Exodus. Okay. And I'm thinking, too, that in, uh, several years before that, 1961, was the Betty and Barney Hill incident a bit farther north near Franconia Notch, as I understand it. And um, th th this was an abduction case that was the first in the country to really get any real media attention. So you can describe that, too, briefly, if you would, and then I have a question about various connections. Sure, yeah, uh, Betty and Barney Hill case, that was September 19, 1961. Betty and Barney were coming back from a vacation in Canada, and they were driving through Lancaster, New Hampshire, and they saw an object in the sky, and so they stopped in an observatory point to view it through binoculars and were very interested, specifically Betty, in the object. And as they continued down the highway in the White Mountains, um, they... The object seemed to come closer to them, come over them. They stopped the vehicle. Barney got out of the vehicle, um, viewed the object through binoculars, became a bit distraught, and then jumped back into the vehicle. And at that point, they went speeding down the road. And at some point, they heard a series of beeps and buzzes, and then they don't remember. Then they feel that they had maybe a, a span of missing time. And the next thing they know, they were on their way home, but it was drastically later, and they felt that they had somehow, you know, were missing some time. So that's the thumbnail in the Betty and Barty Hill case. Okay. Now, it's we don't want to draw connections where there might not be any, but we can certainly speculate. There is a belief in the UFO community, and it I can understand it. Um, ben and I are sort of recent... Um, inductees, if you will, not abductees, but inductees into sort of the UFO community over the past six, eight years or so. The, uh, the whole notion of them, them, whoever them may be, aliens or whatever, being interested in, in our nuclear capabilities, uh, might 
if that's true, draw some connections between all these various, uh, between the 509th and uh, various New Hampshire and, and, uh, and New Mexico uh, incidents. So the 509th, which was the only, was, was a center of the Strategic Air Command and had nuclear weapons, moves to Portsmouth. And also at, in the 60s uh, begins the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant. Obviously non-military, but nevertheless nuclear. And a lot of strange things supposedly have been seen around the Seabrook plant. So as we draw all this together, do you know of any incidents around the Seabrook plant that were being, I've heard of uh, people have come up to us at lectures, and and the same lectures, uh, the same events you, you have spoken at as well. And so maybe you've heard the same things. They've told us about some awfully strange people or beings seen around the Seabrook nuclear plant in southern New Hampshire. So do you have any uh, UFO incidents that you're aware of uh, that have occurred around uh, that vicinity, which isn't that far from Exeter? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, the Hampton Hampton area, Salisbury area, right where the nuclear plant is, that's been a rich area for UFO sightings from the 60s right on up through the 80s. There are actually a lot of sightings in that area in the 80s, which I believe is, not, is the time period where the nuclear plant went in or not too long after that. Um, well, what's interesting is is that, as you mentioned before, 509, at the time when it was in Roswell, was the only nuclear uh, bomb wing. Now, when they moved to Exeter, what was interesting is after the Exeter case broke, uh, the incident in Exeter, one of the big questions was, does Pease have a designated UFO officer? Because back then, most Air Force bases had a specific person at the base that was designated to field all UFO reports, and then they were the they would report back to Wright Patterson Air Force Base, which is where Project Blue Book was housed, the study of UFOs, the Air Force's study. So, um, so what's interesting is after Exeter, Exeter um, T's claimed to not have a UFO officer. And whenever they were asked, they said, oh, we, didn't have, we don't have a specific officer. And they, they tasked um, Lieutenant Brandt, who was the information officer, and Major Griffin, two people from Pease Base, they tasked them with investigating Exeter. But that was one of the big questions. People always felt that maybe there was someone that was a UFO officer, but they just didn't want to reveal that they had one. Well, um, in my research, one of my latest articles I put out, I was actually able to identify for the first time the officer who was actually the UFO officer at Pease, and he was at the time a major in the 509th, but he actually retired a colonel, so he was a pretty high-up gentleman. Very interesting history with him. Hmm. Can you tell us more about him? Sure. His name was Frank Junes Jr., and he was a pilot. He was in Korea, World War II, and Vietnam. Wow. At the, yeah, he, was a, he, he flew with the 360 bomb squadron, dropping bombs over occupied Germany during World War II. So he was a you know, very decorated pilot, cream of the crop. Um, and basically, I stumbled upon this, the information. I was going through the Project Blue Book files, um, just any New Hampshire-related stuff, as I do just kind of sifting through. And I came across a couple of what looked like mundane reports, but when I looked at the bottom of the page, I was blown away because the signature was UFO Investigative Officer 509th Pease Air Force Base. Hmm. So 
you know, I knew it was something special because up until this point, no UFO officer for Pease had ever been identified. So at that point, I, you know, I set out to find more information about uh, Colonel June. Now, aside from the nuclear connection, Ryan, uh, did you or have you been able to find out what uh, Major Griffin's opinion was, or what the official Air Force opinion was? It may have been different of the incident at Exeter and or the Betty and Barney Hill incident. Um, well, it's an interesting story with Exeter because what happened was is immediately after the sighting happened, it was in the paper and it got a, a bit of media attention and. It, so what happened was the Air Force and the Pentagon launched an investigation into it, but before they were even done their investigation, they were putting out press statements saying, oh, it was weather, it was planets, it was, you know, they gave all these different uh, explanations. It was the lights from peas, weather inversions, all these different things. And so, um, you know, the police officers involved obviously were a bit upset because they were both ex-military. One of them was ex-Air Force and had four years refueling uh, military crafts. So these, these were not, you know, these were police officers that had some military and aviation background, and they were also familiar with all the planes in the area. So, uh, so basically there was an investigation, and though... The investigation was very thorough, and ultimately, there was a congressional hearing called by Gerald Ford, and the Exeter case was one of the key cases that was brought up, and J. Allen Hynek, who was the scientific advisor for Blue Book, after they had said it was planets, and they had given a bunch of different explanations, he was forced under oath to admit that, no, the Exeter was, in fact, still an unknown case, so... Um, to answer your question, you know, there was a lot of kind of trying to explain it away with mundane things, but ultimately they had to admit that it was still an unknown. So kind of uh, more the same from the Air Force at that period, which it seemed like that's what they were always trying to do. So getting back to the nuclear connection, in your opinion, uh, did something, whatever it may be, follow the 509th from Roswell to Portsmouth and continue its interest in the nuclear factor? You know, it's, I don't know that, you know, it's hard to really say, in my opinion, I would, I would lean towards, um, I think maybe it could have increased the activity, but just having, you know, gone back as far as 47 and before, um, you know, with UFO sightings in New Hampshire, I know that there was, you know, there's been many sightings prior to the 509 coming in 58, so, um, I, you know, it's hard to say. You know, I, I don't like to speculate too much on things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I definitely know that there was increase in sightings in that area, including the incident in Exeter. Um, and there was other police sightings as well that weren't as well published as that, that actually happened with Exeter police and other military in the area, which there's a few cases I could talk about. Yeah, well, um, please do, please do, because uh, I'm sure we're not familiar with all of them. Certainly not the yeah, sure. One that's really interesting is it, it was actually the day that Roswell happened. July, or the day of the day after, sorry, forgive me. It was uh, July 8, 1947, and, or at least the day it was announced, I should say, on the radio. Okay. Um, the, the son of the then governor of New Hampshire, who was a veteran pilot, was flying with another pilot, and they were flying 
to Laconia over Alton Bay, daytime, both experienced pilots, and they spotted an object flying at a high rate of speed at about 3,000 feet, so it was below them traveling very fast, cylindrical object, and the thing just whizzed right by them, and they watched it fly over Alton Bay and just maneuver by them and take off. And so that one's very interesting because you have the the son of the, the governor at the time having this sighting. Um, he owned uh, he owned some sort of airline company in Laconia. So he was so, a pilot. Yeah, so he was between his military experience, both him and his um, his the person that was with him, both having that experience, and you know him constantly flying. He was very well versed in the airplanes at the time, and you know that was very well publicized in the paper quite a bit at the time too. So you know it just goes to show, you know, where it was the governor's son. You know, you don't think someone would come out lightly with something like that, and you know have have it being reported in the paper. And I mean, they were very conservative about it. They were saying, you know, we're not saying it's a flying saucer, but you know, it's like, unlike anything we've ever seen between the look of it, the speed, the shape. So that, that one's interesting where it. it it um, coincides with Roswell, the same time. And, yeah, that, that is very interesting. Vantage, mm-hmm. oh. uh, you have a question? Uh, I'm still formulating. Okay, <laughs> taking it all in. All right, so uh, what other incidents occurred during the time of the, uh, that we haven't discussed yet, during the time of the 509th presence in New Hampshire? And I believe they they were transferred gradually between 88 and 92 to Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri. Am I right about that? That sounds about right, correct, yes. Okay. So uh, before 1992, what other incidents involved the police or the military uh, sightings or other other things that occurred at that point? Well, there was just a year after Exeter. Um, there was a number of sightings during that time um, by civilians in that area, but um, one that happened that was another police sighting that was just about a year after was um, another Exeter police officer was downtown kind of doing his rounds at night and spotted an object that appeared to drop from the sky, dropped to a little bit over the horizon, and was just hovering. So he started watching it, and it appeared to be, you know, a glowing light, have some detail to it. Um, and it seemed to just be kind of hovering in one spot, maybe moving back and forth a little bit. So he radioed in to the base to have them bring him some binoculars so he could try and get a better look at it. And um, so he described it as a white egg-shaped object that appeared to have some lights on it um, and that appeared to be hovering yet maybe swaying back and forth, um, maybe exhibiting a little, like, falling leaf motion Um And so another officer and also actually a reporter from the Manchester Union leader happened to be hanging out at the police station. So I believe there was four witnesses to this, two police and then a reporter. Um, And so they basically brought him the binoculars and watched the object for a while. um, And, you know, they couldn't identify it as a plane or, you know, any, any, um, any IFOs. So that one was interesting because there was a number of witnesses to police and, um, you know, they all took a look at it for a while and really couldn't figure out what it was. And one of the things that I've always found intriguing is 
the kinds of craft, if these are craft or if they're all craft, uh, that are seen, uh, whether it be in New Hampshire or anywhere else, do you do you find what differences do you find between the kinds of craft? In other words, in the Betty and Barney Hill case, I suppose that there were lights and even windows as people looking out, um, and sometimes, as you mentioned, now just an egg-shaped craft. I mean, th- there seem to be differences, substantial differences at times, not only in the kind of craft, again, if that's what they are that are re- reported, but in, even the aerial patterns. Uh, and the me- and the the patterns of flight. Uh, you, have you noticed that too? And and how do you, is there any way to, to to draw any conclusion from that? Do you think? Uh, and are there really the the great differences that that seem to exist that I just described? There are. You know, there there is there is a, a bit of diversity there. Um, you know, from my experience, cylindrical craft. You know, there seems to be a theme with that in New Hampshire where. Some of these earlier, or actually a good amount of these earlier military cases involve a cylindrical object. Um, so that's, that's something that I've seen enough consistently, you know, in, in military sightings over a span of time where I think cylindrical object is really one that has stood out over the, over the period of time, just looking at things over, you know, 40, 60 years. Um, you know, another thing that's interesting is a lot of time these cylindrical objects, they're, they're being spotted at about 2,000, 3,000 feet, which is interesting because, you know, the, just kind of theorizing, um, you know, it's high enough where you're not going to be hitting any telephone poles or any, you know, anything kind of protruding from the ground um, most likely, yet it's low enough where you're not really going to be in danger of running into any plane. So I found that interesting that a lot of these things are sighted at a height that's around 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 feet. I've seen that. So that's, that's something that I've noticed and picked up on. But, I mean, like you said, the Betty and Barney Hill, that craft is significantly described different. Um, there's been a lot of egg-shaped craft described by witnesses. Um, there's been your more classic saucer shape described by some people, um, and then there's even been things that don't necessarily have a particular form that more just, you know, look like, um, you know, something that's glowing or bright, um, whether it's white or yellow or orange or red light. So there's a bunch of diversity there. Okay. You've described some very, very credible witnesses to uh, many or most of these incidents. What photographic evidence is there, and is there any uh, radar evidence of uh, in any of these incidents, particularly with Peter Air Force Base right there? There is actually. It's interesting because um, the the same day as the Betty and Barney Hill sighting, September 1961, just a few hours earlier, both. He's and a radar station right over the border in Vermont picked up a large unknown object on radar. Um, and, you know, so much so they were concerned that they, you know, they radioed to superiors or, you know, sent out teletypes about it and they monitored the object. And what was interesting is it was a large object and it, was, it would move and then stop and stay in a particular place for a certain amount of time, then it would move again. So it was showing some movement, and then it just disappeared from the screen. So 
that's an interesting side note to the Hill case because it was a few hours earlier, but it was in the general area of of their sighting that they had later that night. Um, so that that's the immediate one that comes to mind. But there's also been a number of other cases at Pease where objects have showed up on radar and, and jets have been scrambled. That was a common occurrence or, or happened a number of times in the 60s right around the instant exit or right around the 65 time period. Um, so there's definitely a lot of cases uh, where there's been things picked up on radar. Uh, another one that's actually really interesting that I've been doing some research on was in 1959, and basically all of a sudden a bunch of objects showed up on radar, and at the time they had a bunch of different radar stations. They had one in Truro, Cape Cod. They had the Brunswick Station, which I believe was the Maine, and then they had what they called the Texas Tower which was almost like a mini oil tower that would float out in the ocean, but it was actually a radar thing. But they designed them to look like old uh, oil flotation centers. So the, all of a sudden these objects got picked up, and they were picked up by all three radar, and there ended up being about 15 radar tracks. And so jets were scrambled by peas in a bunch of different bases, and... A handful of the aircraft were identified, but the rest of the craft that they tried to chase and engage with the jets just disappeared. Okay. So uh, that's an interesting Yes, indeed. Uh, we're going to take our break at this point. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON. 1240 in New England's beautiful but snowy Blackstone River Valley and the 70th anniversary on the air of ON 1240. Happy to be part of that. And uh, we'll be right back. So stick with us. We'll be right back with Ryan Mullahy. The Extra Point. Afternoons on ON 1240 Radio, bringing you local interviews, stories, and opinions on the local athletes with none other than radio great Lou Mandeville. Yes, that's me. Afternoons, Monday through Friday on ON 1240. Okay, well, that was brief, and we're right back here with Behind the Paranormal, to having a fascinating tour through New Hampshire's very strange UFO history, particularly as it relates to the 509th, famous 509th uh, U.S. Air Force uh, bomb wing, uh, famous for the Roswell case of 1947 and, and uh, subsequent events. And uh, let's go right back. We'll talk about our charities. Uh, our show was adopted in our announcement section, but let's get back with Ryan Mullahy at this point. Uh, ben, you had a question. I did indeed have a question, and I was going to uh, I was going to ask, since uh, the five, the five hundred ninth moved in nineteen ninety two, did the phenomena follow them? Do you know, Ryan? Yeah, because they you went know, to Missouri. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know because I know that when they moved, I I don't know that they might have been. I don't know. There was a bit of changes that went on where I don't know that they were still a stack nuclear bomb wing at that point. Um. So I, to answer your question, I haven't heard anything about the activity following them to their new location, but I, I'm not even sure when they finally did move if they still remained an actually nuclear bomb wing. I know they remained, you know, the 509th, but so yeah, that I haven't heard anything on. Well, sometimes they might have remained so, but that was not publicly known. Okay, we have a caller, none other than Shane Searway on the line. Uh, we had hoped that Shane could get down for 
to co-host with us because he's from New Hampshire as well and has some uh, questions of his own, I'm sure, uh, on these these issues. And we, um, I've been trying to put you two fellows in touch with each other because you have similar interests and a lot to share. So let's uh, let's bring Shane on. Shane, are you with us? Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, very good. Well, welcome to the show. <laughs> Usually you're here as a co-host, and we'll see you next week for that. Well, you're here in spirit and voice. Yes. You got it. So, uh, and, and it's, it's a good um, transition now, because we were going to talk to uh, Ryan about what happened, you know, after the depart in New Hampshire, after the departure of the 509th, and uh, how the incident patterns may have changed. But you yourself, Shane, uh, I, I will presume that you'd like to share with Ryan some of your own recent experiences in New Hampshire and uh, see how that goes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, recently, back in September, the beginning of September of this year, um, I was I'm doing some work in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, and of course, I got my truck that's labeled and uh, you know paranormal research. So everyone knows who I am, and um, I was approached at a hardware store, and um, I was a retired police officer who, at between the hours of one a.m. and two a.m. in the morning, saw a gigantic. What he said, massive, massive, massive um, disc shape in the sky, and it was it was lit up white uh, with white. Um, at first, you know, he, he's walking his dog, and he thought, "Man, the the moon's awful bright tonight." And he finally looked up, and he realized it wasn't the moon, but it was. He just kept saying, "Massive, massive, massive." So um, <clears throat> the thing was just moving kind of back and forth. Then it t- tilted to the side. He said the lights went out. Actually, yeah. The light, the light went out. He could still see the dark silhouette. Um, it tilted to the side. He said sparkles fell from it, and it took off at a high, high rate of speed. Um, <clears throat> I, now, I, I'm still getting reports of the same incident from um, employees of many different uh, companies that were out that night. Um, other people, um, I've gotten probably close to 20 reports from different people that don't know each other of, of that same night. <clears throat> um, now... A couple days after that, I saw black military military helicopters flying in the same direction, same same area. Um, a couple days after that, I saw more helicopters, uh, black unlabeled military helicopters, and then um, and then it was like a day after that, so almost like a week later, there were fighter jets, three fighter jets that flew over our area. That never happens around here, um, and they flew very low, very very low. They shook everything. Um, right over the town, right in the same direction where where this uh, this UFO was spotted, um, they fought, uh, they they set off uh, countermeasure uh, flares over Hancock, New Hampshire, which is not far from Jaffrey. Um, just thought it was kind of bizarre. And um, now, uh, probably a week, not even a week after that, I'm driving home in New Ipswich, which is right next to Jaffrey, New Hampshire, and I'm heading down my road, and just over. There's a, a tree line, and then there's a, a hill up um, in front of me. And just above that hill, I see a, in its daytime, blue sky, a silver disc just hovering over the over the hill, and you know, just kind of slightly moving back and forth. Then all of a sudden, it was like <clears throat> one flew from on the right side of that. It flew from the background, came up, and stopped right next to that one. And then all of a sudden, it was like someone turned on the light switch, blink, and another one to the right showed up right next to that. And I, I sat there and watched them reaching for my for my camera, and um, before I could get you know everything powered on and ready, the one that blinked on blinked off, and then the other one took off, and the other one took off. Um, but they were de- definitely silver, shiny silver disc. 
they weren't uh, not any kind of aircraft that you know we have in our sky. They were definitely disc shaped. Um, I saw them very clearly, and um, so and we're we're getting a lot more reports from uh, people in the surrounding town, Petero. I've gotten people seeing a orange uh, orb or you know giant orb flying over the side. Um, area in Peterborough. Um, I'm getting reports of uh, other silver deaths. Um, my father, actually, who lives with me, was outside in the middle of the night on, sitting on the deck. It was like two or three nights ago. He looked up and he said there was a cluster of them. He saw a bunch of uh, deaths up in the sky. And a bunch of them just kind of blinked off and took off. And then he said about four and five kind of remained and they slowly moved over the house. He said they were pretty high, but um, definitely not any type of aircraft. Um, hmm. so it's that's that's quite a, very interesting. Yeah, we got some stuff going on in Hampshire too, and you know it's yeah. when you don't have to travel too far to get this stuff because normally we're we're all over the place, but now we got something happening right here. Well, yeah, that that area is actually very rich in history, uh, Joffrey and New Ipswich. Um, I actually used to live in New Ipswich and Peterborough, so I'm familiar with the areas. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, there's a rich yeah rich history of sightings in that area. Um, so, yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me. Um, now, did the gentleman, the police officer, did he give you a specific date and time and information of that nature? Yeah, it was um, it, 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 it was days after he told me uh, he had a hard time pinning down the exact day. It was like September. I'd have to look at a calendar. Um, yeah, you could always look it up. If, if you have that info, you could definitely... Um, you could forward it to me. I don't typically investigate UFOs. I'm more of a historical researcher, but, um, you know, when cases in New Hampshire do come up that are interesting and, you know, there's witnesses and data, I'm willing to, to do some legwork and, you know, interview people. Um, but, but yeah, no, that sounds fascinating. As Ryan can add it to his uh, cornucopia of, uh, New Hampshire incidents, and, which is considerable already. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but uh, Shane, if you'd stay on, stay on the line, if you will, um, and uh, Ryan, uh, after the, l- l- let's fill in the time now between what Shane just said and, and going back in, in history to the time the uh, 509th left, did you notice any change in the, hist- in, in the patterns of sightings or incidents? Because these incidents obviously have continued. Um, did, they, did they change in any way after the departure of the 509th? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there, there's been flaps, you know, if you will, UFO flaps in New Hampshire since then. I mean, it was the mid-60s to the late 60s was, you know, that period during Exeter and during that time period. But then once we go into um, the mid-70s, during 74, there was a big um, UFO flap in New Hampshire and different parts of the country, but we had a number of sightings um, in 74. And then also in the early 80s, there was, uh, a, you know, a number of sightings and pretty much all throughout the 80s and 90s. Um, as far as the sightings changing the nature of them, um, I, I mean, I think that there, you know, there's tend to be, as you get more into the 80s and 90s, there's um, more civilian Report rather than military because um, Project Blue Book, the Air Force's scientific study into UFOs, that ended in 1969. So a lot of those really good military 
UFO sightings that we have for New Hampshire um, come from the Project Blue Book files. So unfortunately, um, not that there aren't other police and military sightings after that, but they become a little bit more sparse because a lot of times people that are in military or police are more reluctant to report these sort of things or be public about them. So there's definitely, I would say, some changes as time went on, um, definitely. Okay. But there, there are still incidents around Seabrook, though. Uh, Shane, I don't know if you were listening to the show earlier, but we happen to bring up the nuclear factor both with the 509th bomb wing at Pease and uh, also reports that we've had about activity around the uh, Seabrook nuclear plant in southern New Hampshire. So, oh, yeah. I, I yeah. Was able to the streamer doesn't seem to be working today. Um, so I was trying to listen into the car, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with Seabrook being very, very active. Yeah. I remember, um, I don't know, I think, I'm thinking of, uh, it was one of, it was the Lemonster, the New England, the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, I believe it was a year ago or two years ago, and I believe you were there, Ryan, and, um, someone came up to our table after we'd spoken and talked about strange white clad figures who were not human seen on roads around the Seabrook plant uh, in conjunction at times with UFO sightings as well. So I mean, whether that was, you know, credible or not, we had no way to tell. But um, I've always meant to uh, mention this to you, Ryan, and see if you'd heard anything similar. And this is as good a time as any. And you mentioned there had been incidents. But specifically, um, have you heard of, of people on strange beings or whatever on roads around Seabrook in conjunction with UFO sightings by any chance? Have you heard of that? I, You know, I haven't. I haven't heard that. I mean, a lot of the sightings that um, that I have, you know, heard about or seen in my research um, that are in that area tend to be there was a lot of sightings in the 80s, um, like I said, which was interesting because I believe Seabrook went in in the late 70s or in the 80s at some point, so... There's a lot of uh, sightings from East Hampton and Hampton Beach and that Salisbury area. Um, there's been a lot of sightings there. So I definitely think there's a cluster, but nothing of, with beings or anything that specific. No, more just um, just pretty credible sightings from civilians. Well, having led into that subject, uh, that this area of the subject, uh, how many, what percentage of, would you say, of the incidents in New Hampshire between 1958 and 1992, uh, the, the 509th period, were not just sightings, but landings and or abductions? What percentage would you say? Uh, that's tough. I mean, it's tough to say because, I mean, as far as New Hampshire goes with abductions, um, it's, there's not a whole lot of abduction cases out of New Hampshire that at least that are you know that are known publicly um, so there's only really two that come to mind um, Betty and Barney Hill obviously being one mm-hmm. and the other being um, and I'm, I'm not remembering the name right at this moment it might take me a second but it was another case that took place in the 70s um, in Goffstown um, the Lydia Morrill case that, that was the other case there um, so there, there's those two cases that involve uh, abductions, but um, yeah, that, those are the only two that I can really think of that involve um, that sort of stuff. Most of the sightings um, 
that I can think of off the top of my head from 58 to 92. Um, like I said, some of them were military sightings um, from Blue Book, which a lot of them derived from um, Air Force craft either on exercise missions or flying missions and picking up stuff on radar. So there's a lot of that stuff. And then there's a lot of civilian nighttime sightings, um, but not a lot of beings or abductions. So the, the implication perhaps being that the interest of whoever or whatever is involved in flying these things is, in, is, is elsewhere, perhaps with the military and or the, the nuclear factors we discussed. And now we're th- I'm thinking of cases around the world where there has been, and we've done whole shows on the interest seemingly showed by UFOs, whatever they may be, uh, in our nuclear capabilities and our nuclear proclivities, whether it be power plants or weapons. And uh, and I'm sure, Ben, you remember uh, from the Rendlesham Forest case in England, uh, the testimonies on this show by Colonel Halt and others oh, yeah. that the craft uh, came over the base and w- w- beams were coming down from some cr- craft uh, into the weapons uh, storage area. Uh, which that's a little disconcerting. Extremely, and uh, there have been other reports we received on the show of, uh, of of nuclear weapons, particularly missiles, being deactivated. I mean, that's fine, but but also of them being retargeted, and we've never gotten an answer to the question: Well, retargeted by what and to where? Yeah, right. That, that's even more disconcerting. So um, the point being, Ryan uh, or Shane, have you have you heard of any? Uh, such incidents in New Hampshire uh, from Pease or wherever, you know, and, and that might, or from Seabrook that might have involved an attempt to tamper with nuclear technology or, or devices uh, by UFOs in, in any way? Or is it just all observation, seemingly? Um, I mean, for, coming from me, I've, I, don't, I haven't seen anything that would imply they were, you know, tampering. Um, no, I haven't seen anything like that, but um, you know, the, the, the number of sightings in the proximity of the base and even, you know, there's actually one report that I could share with you that's actually really interesting that was actually the night of Exeter. Um, so to answer your question, no, no actions that would, you know, make us think they were trying to, you know, manipulate the nuclear weapons in any way, so at least in New Hampshire that I've heard of. Um, but an interesting sighting, the same night as Exeter, the Exeter sighting of Norma Muscarello at Pease Air Force Base, there's a gentleman who was with the 509 security, so he was in the, the guard shack at the front gate. He later went on to be the police chief of Nashville in New Hampshire for 14 years. I'm unfortunately blanking out on his name right now. Um, but he was working the guard shack that night, and he gave an account that they saw an object drop down from the sky that had lights on it and was coming directly at the base at them in the guard tower. Um, one of the guys, the other gentleman that was with the person that made the report was visibly distraught, and the gentleman who made the report had to pick up, you know, the red phone and call call the radar deck or whoever to have them, to let them know that there was a security breach and that, you know, maybe they should scramble jets. And so... The guy described the object that flew over the base, and he said he couldn't really make out shape, but he could see some lights that was large, and he claimed that as this thing flew over peas, the lights were going out. Hmm. And then as it would move its way across the base, you know, so many seconds later, the lights would come back on. 
So they scrambled jets. Um, he went to the radar station and said that he heard the pilot saying over the, ra- the radio, you know, we can't catch up with this thing, and basically they weren't able to identify what it was. Now, that one didn't come from an actual report. That came from an account that was given by this gentleman. But like I said, he was part of 509 Security. He was also the police chief in Nashua later on for, uh, sorry, not Nashua, Hampton Beach, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. for 14 years. So, you know, pretty credible guy and a really – so. That's a case where there was some sort of interaction going on where the lights were dimming, but that's probably the closest thing that I've heard of, of kind of any sort of interaction as far as the military bases. Okay. Well, because we do have to realize that just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And uh, if something doesn't become public, it doesn't, you know, again, it's uh, things are are very often kept kind of hush-hush. Now, this is a very odd question perhaps but um we what what is the ostensible reason for the 509th moving from roswell to portsmouth the reason we ask is that in areas where there is a lot of activity ben and i call them flap areas shane works with us on these cases where all sorts of different kinds of paranormal activity are occurring in the same area seemingly unrelated to each other but we think they are related uh that the military always shows up why, why did, as far as we know, why did the 509th move from Roswell, New Mexico, to Portsmouth, New Hampshire? If I now I'm going off of memory, so if I rem, I could be mistaken, but if I remember correctly, um, the reason was for a military for the positioning, strategic positioning, where um, just having the nuclear weapons and being positioned in New Hampshire, I think strategically was just at that time was, was better for them for, you know, the, the sort of things they were doing as far as how they were running our, you know, our national defense and the bomb wings and the nuclear capability and whatnot. But I'm going by memory from that, so I'd have to check on that. But I believe it was a, a positioning, uh, you know, where the base was off the coast on in the U.S., but I would have to check on that. Okay, that that makes sense militarily, and of course one of the principles of being a talk show host, it's like being a lawyer. Never ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know, so so uh, you know it it does make sense uh, strategically that being in New Mexico, uh, they were inheriting the the uh, uh, legacy of World War II and the emphasis on nuclear weapon use in Asia. Okay, as a po- and and then uh, as the Cold War got underway. Uh, the emphasis was on Europe, and it would, would have made more sense for them to be on the East Coast uh, rather than in the middle of, of the country in the Southwest. So, so that that does make sense. Um, and I'm wondering, uh, we did find that with with Roswell, not, I should say, with the Rendlesham Forest case, where you had uh, the NATO bases straddling this weird Rendlesham Forest, where some strange things happened to us, uh, that, that you've got uh, military presence. Uh, possibly um, with with a, a few officers or maybe even a group of people researching this, the the oddities that occur there because maybe we could somehow harness the whatever principles are behind it for military purposes. But that that's maybe a topic for another time. Indeed. But uh, exactly. So um, Ryan, uh, we're burning out. We burned up the hour pretty quickly here. Tell us again about uh, yourself. Your your web. You have a new website, I understand, and uh, what you're working on now. Sure. Yeah, I just launched a new website. It's New Hampshire UFO Research.com and it's NH UFO Research.com. 
And basically, it's just a, a new website um, where I'm uploading all of my research articles and my past stuff, but I'm also going to be making it more of a research tool in the sense that I'm going to start uploading um, like periodical lists for New Hampshire UFOs, um, book lists, TV and movie lists, documentary lists, research tools for people so if they have an interest in the subject in New Hampshire, they can come to my page and, and you know, start to learn themselves about it. I'm also adding a section for audio clips. Um, there's a lot of really great audio clips that are part of the Faded Disc Archive, which is on archive.org. And what they've compiled a lot of these old radio shows from the 50s and 60s during the time of the incident in Exeter, Betty and Barney Hill, um, a lot of these, you know, classic time periods. So... Um, I'm also cataloging and uh, linking to those as well so people can go back and hear Betty and Barney on radio shows talk about their sighting and, you know, just hear stuff directly out of their mouth. So those, that's the sort of things that's going to be on the website. Um, I'm also uh, working on, still working on a book on UFOs that hopefully will be done soon. And um, just so that's pretty much it, just working on getting the new site up and getting new information up. Um, I'm also going to be putting a master chronology on there so people will be able to scroll through the different decades and time periods and look at different sightings from different credible sources and, you know, just read a brief synopsis and, you know, explore there. So, you know, just hoping to expand that and, you know, give that as a resource to people. Very good. Uh, and, I, and this applies to you too, Shane. You know, there, there are a lot of people in this field Ben and I don't like. And you two are by no means in that group. Uh, the two of you and the general circle with whom we go to conferences and speak and know and help each other out on cases, uh, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, and, and many of the other of, of our friends, uh, are among the best non-sensational, feet-on-the-ground people. And, uh, Ryan, we really like you a lot and respect what you do with you two, Shane. You know that. So thank, thank you, you so much. For, for both uh, being on the show and Shane, we'll see you next week here in the studio for open lines and uh, provided there's no snowstorm. Well, I mean, you know, hey, we're New Englanders. That's here, true. So yeah, we're gonna wimp out on this. Uh, anyway, so thank you both very much, and uh, we'll be talking to you real soon. And uh, you too, stay in touch because you got a lot to share. I think. Definitely, we'll, we'll connect off offline. Very good. Okay, thank you both thank very you much. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you. Very good you as well. Okay, folks, uh, lots of announcements here to start, and uh, Ben, why don't you give us a, uh, a start. start? Start us off, I suppose? Yes. So, our new book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is now in most bookstores, and if they don't have it, they can get it. And it's also available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online real, real, uh, retailers. But if you're really serious uh, and you can get an autographed, you can get an autographed copy on our website. Uh, it's behindtheparanormal.com or our main site uh, that is uh, newenglandghosts.com. Okay, our scheduled presentation uh, here in our home territory here at Woonsocket Harris Public Library in Rhode Island uh, had to be canceled because of the snowstorm this weekend. It was supposed to have been yesterday, but it will be rescheduled as soon as all of us around here get our wits back, and uh, we'll let you know the new date as soon as we have that. And uh, that brings us to Thursday, January 19th, uh, when we will do a presentation and book signing at the Franklin Public Library in Temporary Digs at uh, 25 Kenwood Circle in Franklin, Massachusetts. Uh, that begins at 6.30 p.m. 
Yeah, and that's our next event uh, scheduled here. On Saturday, February 18th, we'll be at the Danbury, Connecticut Public Library for a program and book signing beginning at 10.30 a.m. That'll be a long uh, early morning for us, Ben. Alrighty, so Saturday, March 11th, uh, we will find you will uh, find us at the Book Lovers Gourmet uh, Bookstore in Webster, Massachusetts, for a presentation and signing beginning at 2 p.m. And there's still more. The following week, Saturday, March 18th, we'll be presenting and signing at Toadstool Bookshop in Keene, New Hampshire. Uh, I often think we should move to New Hampshire. We have such New Hampshire connections. Now. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, we're always speaking up there. Uh, then on Saturday, April 29th, uh, we'll speak at the 2017 Northeast Parafest in Kittery, Maine. That's a, that's a great event that uh, we have a lot of fun there. Yeah, I always enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, new events are being added frequently, so check BehindTheParanormal.com or our show Facebook page for updates. Also, NewEnglandGhosts.com as well. Alrighty, and our new YouTube channel, Behind the Paranormal Case Files, is up and running. Uh, our fourth video is about the uh, famous Bridgeport Poltergeist case in 1974, in which my dad worked with Ed and Lorraine Warren, and that will be posted shortly. Uh, and uh, that's, it, sorry for the delay, holidays and whatnot. You can find our YouTube channel by just looking up Behind the Paranormal uh, uh, with Paul and Ben Eno. You can find it that way, or you can find it through our Facebook page, that's Paul, that's Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And uh, you can subscribe and like our videos to get more of our stuff. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, find out more about the show. Again, also our public appearance calendar and more at the show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, where you'll find nearly 700 free recorded shows from both ON1240 here and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, you can find my, my other books. They're... A couple that I wrote myself uh, on Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook. Uh, but if you do buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, I and the, we, in the case of the latest book, will sign them for you. And you will help us keep all those those uh, recorded shows free. Also on our websites, you'll find direct links to several charities that Ben and I have adopted, including USA Cares uh, and Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, HelpForHaiti.com, and Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles, doing terrific things for at-risk youth out there. Tony LeRae does a great job. Uh, and um, uh, probably don't have time for no, we might. We have a, we have a little right. bit of time. Well, just a couple of books that are of interest, uh, particularly to our local audience: uh, UFO Repeaters and the Bell Witch Project. Two books uh, from Global Communications. Uh, that that's Timothy Green Beckley's publishing company uh, out of New York, and uh, they have a, a chapter. Well, I contributed to the Bell Witch one, but UFO Repeaters has an entire chapter on our great friend uh, Joe Ferrier, who was a talk show host here on O N twelve forty for oh, over fifty years, and uh, great UFO. UFO researcher of the 1960s. Great books. Indeed. So next Sunday, January 15th, uh, we will be joined once again by our colleague Shane, she- Shane Searway, who could not be with us today. Uh, to no, bring except us on the phone. Exa- well, yes. Well, to, in physical form, he could not <laughs> be here. To bring us an open line uh, show uh, to answer all your questions on all sorts of paranormal subjects. Now, we'll leave you this afternoon with a thought from person or persons unknown. One of the most important keys to success is having the discipline to do what you know you should do even when you don't feel like doing it, unquote. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on A Great Cosmic Journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of 